0: You are listening to The Archivist. I'm Jana, and I'm dedicated to preserving the details of crimes that are committed and lives that are lost. This is The Archivist. All right. Well, I hope you guys enjoyed the uh, episode that was released on Monday this week. Kind of a little bonus extra, just something that I'd been working on and saw that the... uh, anniversary of repealed prohibition was coming up. So I thought, no better time to release that extra episode than that day. So I hope you enjoyed it. And uh, we're going to go into one that is definitely going to be two parts. So today is going to be part one, and then next Wednesday will be part two. So make sure um, to get all of this story that you do come back and listen to part two. Um, So I am going to start right now, and we're going to talk about the Irish Vanishing Triangle. And so I don't want to get all mathy on you, so let's talk a little bit about a triangle. There's multiple kinds of triangles, equilateral, isosceles, and I'm kidding. I'm not literally going to explain triangles. <laughs> um, I just was being silly I when I thought about, how am I going to introduce this? But what I can tell you, in the true crime world, there's a lot of triangles. Um, These refer to areas in like a city or a state that have a noticeable amount of unexplained activity. So just a couple that you probably have heard of in the past. The Bridgewater Triangle, it's an area in southeast Massachusetts, and there's really strange phenomena happening in the Bridgewater Triangle. There's a lot of paranormal activity uFOs people have reported seeing like balls of fire or like strange orbs. There's also been sightings of Bigfoot or a Bigfoot, and there's also a little cryptid called a pudge what a puckwudgie uh I don't know what that is, but it's a cute little name, a puckwudgie. Um, There's another triangle near there, that same area, the Bennington Triangle, and this is in southeast Vermont. And this triangle basically has several very mysterious disappearances that start in 1945, and then end very abruptly in 1950. And none of the, none of the disappearances in that triangle or in that area were really investigated Very much, like they didn't, they more like thought it was just like a lost hiker or something. But it's really possible that there was maybe a serial killer at work in that area during the time. But we likely will never know. There's one other area that I, it's not really a triangle, but it is... The Yellowstone Zone of Death. And this is like a little area, 50 square mile section of the Yellowstone National Park that exists inside of a legal loophole. And basically the U.S. Constitution makes it hard for anything to be convicted here. So if you commit a murder or a person commits a murder in this area, they can't be convicted for a crime. The loophole is... Because national parks are under the jurisdiction of the U.S. District Court. And that area of the park extends beyond the Wyoming border into Idaho and Montana. But it, so it doesn't follow under the district court in that area. It's a bunch of legal mumble jumble. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna bore you with it basically a jury cannot be seated because there are no residents and the court doesn't have a jurisdiction where the nearest residents are. So it's a bunch of red tape and it creates a legal mess if somebody were to commit a crime. And as far as Wikipedia is concerned, which is where I looked this up, there there are no murders that have been committed in the zone of death at this time. So Let's just hope that this zone of death continues to be a zone of no death. Today, though, I'm going to tell you today and next week, I'm going to tell you about a triangle that has a lot of murders and a lot of disappearances. So this is Ireland's Vanishing Triangle. And this name was actually first coined by the Irish media in the 90s. There are six unexplained disappearances throughout an 80-mile area, as well as murders where the bodies have been found. These disappearances and murders all have similar characteristics, and the ages of the women range from the late teens, their late teens, to their late 30s. But all of these women did vanish inexplicably. There are very little clues as to what happened or where they went. And the Irish police, or they're called the Gardie or the Garda, they have conducted large-scale searches. They did also launch Operation Trace Task Force. And this was all in an effort to kind of locate who this, what is happening. Are these women being murdered by the same person or what is going on? The first woman to go missing when that caught the attention, I'm going to say, because she's not really the first one to go missing. She disappeared on March 26, 1993, and her name is Annie McCarrick. I'm going to talk about Annie and all of these women in a minute, but first, Annie goes missing in March of 1993, and then another woman, JoJo Dollard, goes missing in November 95, And this is when the antennas start to go up on people in this area that's outside of Dublin. But the task force that the GARDA puts together isn't started until 1998. And when I get into the timeline, you're going to see that this is much too late to do any good. And there's still so much that we don't know about what was happening in this area in Ireland in the 90s. All right, so I'm going to take you back to 1991 on December 30. No, on December 23rd, Patricia Doherty spends her day running errands. She went and got her hair cut. She bought some Christmas gifts. She did a little more shopping before she returned to her home in Allenton Lawn's Talget, Talg, Talft, Taloft. I'm so sorry. I'm butchering the pronunciations of these Gaelic words. I'm going to try to do my best. I did listen to some of these, like I looked it up on Google. How do I pronounce this? But my American tongue is not used to this this wording. Uh, basically, she lived in South du- Dublin. And again, I apologize. I'm doing my best. Um, she made it home shortly before 9 p.m., But at the last minute then she decides that she wants to go back out and she didn't get something that she wanted to get. So she runs to the old Bon Center and she wants to buy little Santa hats for her kids. So she has a couple kids. Christmas is in two days. I think this makes sense. You know I I, I'm sure all of us that have families know what is happening here. It's the last minute stuff. On December 25th Yes, December 25th, two days later, Patricia's husband, Patrick, reports her as missing at the Taloft Garda station. Uh, when he tells the police that the last time he saw her on the, was on the 23rd, they are immediately suspicious. And so am I. Uh, I don't get it, but... Okay, so he does explain it. The guardee questioned him about the delay in reporting her. If you last saw her on the 23rd, why are you only just now coming to us? But he explains that she had started a new job as a prison guard at the Mountjoy Prison. And the schedule her work schedule was very erratic and there would be times when you know she wouldn't be able to leave at the end of her shift and she had to stay together and so these shifts would sometimes blend together and he would not see her for 24 hours from one day to the next and so he thought she was working i sort of buy this explanation i i but I also, in the same thing, think, mm, I don't know if she was off that day. Don't you know your spouse's work schedule? I do. I I just I don't know. But I guess if it is a schedule that does not, you know, doesn't follow the same pattern every week that it could be confusing. Like, yes, I maybe she pulled an extra shift so she could have Christmas Day off or something along those lines. I do think it's good that, you know, like where he's thinking it's been more than 24 hours. I know she's not working this many hours in one stretch. That's why he came forward when he did. So I, I can give him a small pass, but I still have a little suspicion about him. But he doesn't appear to be a part of what's happening here. So he does call the per- the prison looking for her and they then tell her tell him that she had not been in for the previous 2 days. He then also tried to call her family and they had not heard from her either and so that's when he went in and reported her missing. So maybe it's maybe it's legit, you know, like he 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 did the steps that you would do if you thought your spouse was working. So when the Garda began their investigation, they are able to find a witness who reported seeing Patricia on the 23rd at around 9.20 p.m. She was walking on the street. She, like, walked past a pub, and she was headed in the direction of this old Bond shopping center. They reported that she was wearing what is called a MAC jacket, a brown MAC jacket, i Don't know what that is. I think it's a longer jacket. Maybe, you know, not one that sits at your waist, but maybe like travels past your butt. Um, She also had a gold scarf wrapped around her head. And this sighting seems to corroborate Patrick's story about her running errands on the 23rd and leaving real quick. And another witness does come forward and says that he saw a woman matching Patricia's description getting into a red car at the entrance of the shopping center. So this account is kind of discounted because the person who mentioned this or told this story is known to the Garda as a known criminal. I don't know why that would make his story invalid, but um, the Garda did not seem to take what he had to say seriously. Despite the investigation and the widespread public ab- appeals that the Garda give, they're never able to pick up Patricia's hair. Ta- trail and find where she went. On June 21st, 1992, a man cutting grass in the Dublin Wicklow Mountains that's an area known as Glass Mucky Breaks, he finds human remains. He said that he noticed an area of the bog that had collapsed, and when he went to investigate this sunken area, he could see that there was a brown MAC coat, and then he saw that this coat is not just a coat, it is actually on a body. And so he immediately runs to the closest house and calls the Garda. After the body is recovered, there is a key that is found in the pocket of the jacket, and the Garda try this key in the door at the Doherty home. And it works, so it does unlock their door. And using this as a jumping-off point, they do um, later identify the body with dental records. The Irish state pathologist Professor Harbison examined her body, and he concluded that Patricia had most likely been strangled to death. There are no signs of a gunshot wound. There's no stab wounds. There's no other sign of trauma the police also found the gold headscarf that Patricia had been wearing and a few other items that she would have had with her at the time she disappeared. So no one is ever arrested in connection with P- Patricia Doherty's disappearance and murder. Now, I want to tell you a story about a woman that disappeared a few years before Patricia And most of the information on the Irish Vanishing Triangle say that the disappearances and murders start with Annie McCarrick. But there is enough compelling evidence in Patricia Doherty's murder and this next one that I'm about to tell you about. Uh, These both share similar, really enough characteristics and similarities that they could very much be a part of the missing and murdered in the canonical Irish triangle. Triangle, Irish Vanishing Triangle. So on June 11th, 1987, 27 year old Antoinette Smith and her close friend and neighbor took a bus into Dublin to attend a David Bowie concert. Antoinette did, she was divorced. Her ex husband Carl and her did have two children, and they were with their dad for this evening. And she, so she was free to go out and have a good time. Um, Antoinette and her friend arrived back at their home around 11 p.m. And they decided that, you know, like they're having too much fun. They don't want to stop the good time. So they meet up with some other friends at a club called La Mirage. And they hang out there. At about 2 a.m., the group of friends, they're leaving this club to go home. But Antoinette was really not ready to call it a night, which... I think she's probably thinking like, this is my free night. I don't want it to end. Uh, But the friend who had attended the concert with her was a little bit peeved and they kind of got into a little, like a little argument and Antoinette decides to stay out and the friend decides to go home for the night. So she did give Antoinette a key to her flat and she headed home. And then Antoinette then walked with the rest of the group to a taxi stand That group then got into a cab, and Antoinette stayed on the sidewalk. The last time that she is seen alive, she is walking toward the O'Connell Bridge at 2.30 a.m., and she is dressed in blue jeans and a David Bowie t-shirt. On the 14th of July, Carl Smith reports his ex-wife as missing at the Klondalken Garda Station. Again, I'm sorry if I didn't pronounce that right. The this time, the police t- told Carl, go home and don't come back unless you have a picture of her. I'm, I don't think they said it that mean. But basically, they don't file a report. They don't take a statement. They just say, do you have a picture? And he says no. And they say, then what are you doing here, laddie? Go home and don't come back until you have a picture. And that was my lame attempt at an Irish accent. I don't, can't do it. I'm not an actor. (laughs) So Carl did return with a picture. And this time he also brought her friend and neighbor that she had gone to the Bowie concert with him. The friend filled in the Garda with the events of the night that they had seen her. And based on the details that are given by the friend, the Garda did launch an investigation. But four days have already passed. And the, how, how do you find somebody that vanishes off the street four days later? There's no evidence and no eyewitnesses who saw her after her friends drove away in a taxi. And unfortunately, on April third, nineteen eighty-eight, a young family that is out on a hike—so a mom and dad and a couple kids—they are in the Dublin Wicklow mountain area, known as Glendoo. And they see a body. And first, the Garda do not know who this is and when they're called to come and investigate. But the clothing on the body is examined. And that's when they see it is a David Bowie t-shirt. Another, they found another key in in the pocket of probably her jeans. And the Garda test it on Antoinette's friend's house. And it works. So... The shirt and the key kind of confirm that this is Antoinette. They do a forensic am- examination of Antoinette's body, and they conclude that she died from asphyxiation. Her head had been wrapped in two plastic bags, and but there's no other evidence of trauma. So her body had been concealed, but because of the heavy rains, the soil around her collapsed and basically exposed her body after Antoinette's body was found the Garda stepped up their investigation they made appeals for anyone with any information to come forward the Garda also did a reenactment of Antoinette's movements that are known about on July 11th and 12th and this is aired on national television and this is when two witnesses do come forward The first one is a taxi driver. He says that at around 3.30 a.m. on the 12th, a man flagged him down near the O'Connell Bridge. Now, that's an hour difference. So so her friends saw her at 2.30. This is 3.30 where he's being flagged down. And he says when he stopped, the man got in and then two more passengers joined him. And this is another man and one woman. And the taxi driver says the first man that flagged him down, he is short, he's mouthy, he has a dark hair parted in the middle, and he had a strong Dublin accent. The second man is described as very tall with dark hair and more quiet. He doesn't talk as much as the other guy. And the, ta- the taxi driver said that this woman was in her late 20s, she was well-spoken, and she had shoulder-length dark hair. She was wearing a David Bowie t-shirt and jeans. And he also said that she had a distinctive tooth on the right side of her mouth. And this was also part of the description that her brother had given the guardie. The driver said that he felt like these three knew each other. They were kind of chummy. They were talking. But nothing romantic was going taking place. It was more just like friends out for a good time. And they had the driver take them to a party. They, were, they said they were headed to a party that was in the foothills of the dublin Wicklow Mountains. And he dropped them off in Rathfarnham Village. And he said that they were headed toward the Yellow House pub. Now, one thing to note is that at 3.30 in the morning, the Yellow House pub is closed. So the second witness that came forward after this reenactment says that he was walking his dogs in an area known as Crua Woods. I just butchered that. It's C-R-U-A-G-H. And this is on the morning of July 12th. I think he said it was around 6am, but it was definitely early morning. And he is making his way up a hill. He's on a path. And he looks up ahead and sees a man walking toward him on the path. And he's like, I didn't see where this man came from. And when he sees the dog walker when this man that's up ahead sees that this dog walker is on this path. He sort of like startles and like pauses for a minute, like stops walking and then starts walking toward the dog walker again. When the dog walker passed this man, he said hello, but the man did not acknowledge him and actually tried to conceal his fate face like pulled his collar up and like looked down so that the dog walker couldn't see his face he did describe the man he said he was in his mid-20s 25 26 years old he had a thin face with parted hair and he was wearing dark clothes and this is where things kind of get a little more weird like I think that this Interaction maybe was a little strange, but nothing to be concerned about. And then what happens next makes the dog walker be like, this is weird. So he says that the man is walking towards the parking lot. And something about the man made the dog walker concerned. Because his van, his own personal car, is in the parking lot where this man is headed. So he's like, "Mm, I think this guy's up to no good. I'm going to turn around and go home. So that's what he does. He turns around. He's headed back towards his van. And this is when he sees that now there are two men up ahead on the path. So a second man has come out of the woods from somewhere and joined this other guy and he says that they are talking to each other and they he didn't see where they came from or anything and when they noticed that he had turned around and was headed their direction they then walk faster so they speed up. I don't think they broke into a run or anything but they noticeably changed their pace He says then, by the time he reaches the parking lot, he can't see where they are. They are not in the parking lot. And he swears, I never heard or saw another vehicle, so they had to still be there. And he said he couldn't say where they went. And they weren't dressed for mountain climbing. And he just said the whole thing was so strange. And these guys... He didn't see where they went after they took off in front of him. And again, he says he wasn't that far away from the car park. If a car had driven away, he would have heard it. And he never did. Despite these two witness accounts, no arrests have ever been made regarding the disappearance and murder of Antoinette Smith. So these two women that I told you about are not considered a part of the eight canonical to borrow the term from Jack the Ripper, uh, they're not a part of the canonical murders and disappearances. But the circumstances around these disappearances and murders do fit with the rest of these women's stories. And I do think it's good to hear about them and consider them as part of whatever it is that is happening in Ireland in the 90s. So the next person is or the next victim is considered one of the most well-known missing person cases in Ireland outside of the vanishing triangle her name Annie McCarrick is pretty well known as a missing person's case. Annie McCarrick is 26 years old and she is living in the area of Sandy Mount in Dublin. And unlike these two previous women, she is not married and she does not have children. And it doesn't really mean anything. I don't think this killer was targeting specifically mothers with children, but it's just a detail about her life. Annie is not actually of Irish nationality. She is an American. She grew up in Bayport, Long Island in New York, and she moved to Ireland in 1987 to study teaching at St. Patrick's College. After she finished her degree, she returned to New York in 1990. But she decided that she really loved Ireland and she wanted to move back. So in early 1993, she makes this move back to Dublin. After she returned to Ireland, Annie wasted no time getting in touch with her friends from her previous living stay in Dublin. So, on the morning of March 26, 1993, Annie calls her friend Anne O'Dwyer and asks if she would like to go hiking in the Dublin Wicklow Mountains that day. Anne is unable to meet with her. She has an injured ankle, so she's like, I can't do any hiking. And so, Annie decides to make this hiking trip a solo adventure. And Nobody knows for sure. It's speculated, but nobody really knows if she tried to get another friend to meet up with her. The rest of this day is a typical day for Annie. So she was living in an apartment with two friends, and they left early that morning to go to their country home that they planned to spend the weekend there. So they, I guess they had a second home somewhere else. Annie stayed in Dublin, and she did some knitting, and then at around 11 a.m., she ran some errands, and these are typical errands, nothing out of the ordinary. She stopped at the bank, she bought groceries, and she did a few other things. She returned to her apartment at around 3 p.m., and there's a plumber that's doing work in the apartment complex, and he sees her again at 3.15 leaving, and it's an interesting detail about Annie's day. She never unpacked her groceries that she bought. They were sitting in the bag on the table in her apartment. So uh, maybe she thought she would be back really soon, or I don't know. Nobody really knows because it seems like an unusual thing to just leave your groceries in the bag. Like usually when you come in, you put them all away, but she did not. So maybe she was hurrying to meet somebody Annie was seen walking toward a bus stop along New Grove Avenue and this is near a local fast food restaurant and the owner whose name is Bruno Borza sees her and he clocks that yes she was walking toward the bus. She is then seen getting on the number 18 bus and she then transferred to the number 44 bus in Rainley. I don't think I said that right. The second bus would then take her to the village of Enniskerry in the Dublin Wicklow Mountains. And so while she's on this number 44 bus, she's actually spotted by a formal, former work colleague. And this is Amir O'Grady. And she is convinced that this is Annie. And even though they did not speak, she didn't interrupt her or say anything She knows it was her, and Amir exits the bus before Annie does, so she didn't have any insight into, like, where she got off or where she was headed. This bus ride should have put Annie and Enescarra at around 5 p.m. in Enescarra. I can't say these words. I'm so sorry. <laughs> Most people in the area, they think that this is kind of late to hike in the mountains in the countryside because the sun would be setting at around 6 15 that day. It's March, so it's still winter time, and she would have very little time of daylight to go hiking. After her disappearance is reported. Uh, by her roommates and the Garda are working on retracing Annie's steps. They can't find anyone who can positively identify her in the village of Enniskerry. Annie was about five foot eight and she had long curly hair and she was wearing a tweed jacket that's pretty distinctive and she had an American accent. So there's quite a few things that would have made her stand out. If you would like to see pictures from this episode, please visit our website, thearchivistpodcast.com. I always post pictures and important links, as well as listing all the sources for each episode. That's thearchivistpodcast.com. There are a few sightings that are possible, but the Garda are never able to confirm if this is Annie or not. The first is a woman who thinks that she sold some stamps to a woman matching Annie's description, but there's no CC footage to confirm, and the guard aren't really sure that it's her. Like, why would she buy stamps at this post office this far away from where she lives when she could buy them closer to home? The second sighting comes from a security guard at a popular pub called Johnny Fox's, and he claimed to see... Annie in the pub the evening that she vanished so his name is Sam Doran and he's the guard and he said that he saw a woman with Annie's description talking to a man and he said the two were very friendly with each other um, he said that this other man was also tall he was about five foot nine he was in his mid to late 20s clean shaven with an athletic build and brown hair parted in the middle and Sam also says that he had never seen this man in the pub before that day, and he said he charged these two a cover charge, which the man paid, so it kind of appeared as if this was a date. There's a second security guard at the same pub, um, and he agrees that he had seen the same woman that Sam reported seeing in that bar at around 9 30 p.m. The Johnny Fox Pub is about five miles from Inniskerry. So it's completely within the realm of possibility that Annie had walked from the village to the pub. And according to her friends, she had actually made this trek before, but these vague sightings don't shed any light on where Annie was within the four hours beyond like she got off the bus and then showing up at the pub. There's nothing. Nobody knows where she was in between. Or who she was with. And they also, is this a person that she knew or had she just met this man? So many questions. So Annie had made dinner plans for, with two of her friends, a man named Hillary Brady and his girlfriend Rita Forgin. So on Saturday night when Hillary and Rita showed up at her apartment, she's not there. And this is very strange. So they actually called her parents in New York, and I'm like, that is some good friends. I love that because this felt strange to them. They reported it right away. So they call her friends and her parents, not her friends. They call her parents in New York and say, this is weird. We had dinner plans. She's not here. So the parents are like, let's see what we can do. So they try calling her. And again, they cannot get a hold of her. So they tell the friends to report her missing to the Garda. And her mom, Nancy, and her dad, John, fly to Ireland within a few days of her disappearance. But unfortunately, they did return to New York six months later when the search had been unsuccessful. And to this day, there has been no trace of Annie three months after Annie disappeared, Eva Brennan vanished. For some reason, Eva's disappearance does not seem to catch fire the way that Annie's did. Eva was 39 years old, and she was living in South Dublin in the suburb Rathgar. She's about five foot seven with short dark hair, and her family and friends said that even though she was 39, she looked so much younger than that age. Eva's friends and families described her as a creature of habit. She lived a pretty quiet life and she followed the same routine pretty much daily. So on this Sunday, when she disappeared on a Sunday, she would have attended Mass at St. Joseph's Terenure. And then after Mass, she would have walked from her parents' house. No, she would have walked to her parents' house from the church. And they lived in Rathgar also. She got to her mom and dad's home at around 1 p.m. She habitually visited her parents almost every day. And so on Sunday, July 25th, 1993, it was a bank holiday, and Eva had planned to have dinner with her family. On this Sunday before dinner, though, there was a little bit of a little family argument over what they would have for dinner. It wasn't a bad argument. It was just... I want this, and you want that, and we can't agree. Um, but Eva apparently was upset by this argument. I don't, nobody really said what it was, but she did decide to leave her parents home. By Tuesday, July 27th, no one in Eva's family had heard from her, and this really started to worry her parents Again, she's a ha- she has a habit. She visits her parents almost every day. And not hearing from her two days in a row is not only odd and out of the ordinary, it's practically unheard of. So Eva's dad decides to drop by her apartment and he does not get a response when he knocks on her door. And so he was actually a pretty successful businessman. He owned a bar. It was a pub. Uh, oh, I thought I wrote down the name. I didn't. He owned a bar. And so he goes and he gets a guy that works for him and says, hey, can you help me? Uh, Can you help me get into my daughter's apartment? So this guy breaks the window and climbs in. Her dad was maybe concerned that something had happened at home, that she'd fallen or, you know, thinking that she may be in there in distress So he smashes the window and crawls in, and this place is spotless. I mean, nothing is out of place. Everything is put away exactly how it should be. Eva was extremely tidy. So after finding that she's not in her apartment, he decides that we're calling the police. So he calls the Garda and reports Eva as missing. Even though the police are still searching for Annie McCarrick, they don't seem to link eva's disappearance with annie they don't they don't think they're in any way connected and eva's disappearance doesn't really even seem to raise any suspicions the last time that eva was seen on sunday after she left her parents home she's walking along the temple road but according to her dad it doesn't look like she ever even made it home her wallet, her purse, her keys are not in her apartment. Her coat is there and I guess she had been wearing this coat at her parents house but they don't have any record or they can't really tell that she's there. She had been seen wearing a pink track suit. That's what she had on and this is also not found in her home. So she's likely still wearing it and basically they think if she came home, she left again, and she didn't change clothes. But there's really no no way to confirm anything. Nobody saw her. So, strangely, the Garda tells Eva's family that because she's over 21, they don't believe her disappearance is the result of a crime. The family had shared with the Garda that Eva did struggle with depression in the past, And that is what seems to turn the Garda off her case. This is basically they're like, well, she committed suicide. And her family is like, no, she is a devout Catholic. She wouldn't do that. And there's also no note to indicate this. And Eva's remains have never been found. If she had killed herself, she wouldn't have concealed it. That's what her parents say. The Garda still seems to be disinterested no matter what her parents is, er, and family and friends are insisting. Her father is a member of the Finnafale party, and he used some of his connections to get help from the Irish head of state, Albert Reynolds. Reynolds made an appeal to the authorities, and only after politics are brought into this case— did the Garda open a true investigation? Um, there are some politics at play that I don't understand. The Finna party is essentially the conservative party in Ireland. Ireland is conservative, but one party supports like high- higher taxes to pay for better government programs and more civic involvement, but the Finna party supports lower taxes and market solutions. It's not really important to the story per se, but there has been some politicking involved in this, all of these cases. So because Albert Reynolds got involved in Eva's case after she had been missing for a month, I wanted us to maybe understand that there could be some butting of heads here based on politics. The Garda does launch an investigation, even though it's pretty late. It's a month late at this point. And her apartment was forensically analyzed, but no evidence is found because that's not where she disappeared from. Whatever happened to her did not happen at her apartment. It happened while she was on the public road. Uh, But no one saw her come and go. So the last confirmed sighting of Eva is when she's walking away from her parents' home. The route that she would have taken would have took her through busy, like down some busy roads and through the center of Terenure. And along this route, there are several restaurants and pubs and businesses, and she would have had to pass through a pretty busy intersection, but there's just no one comes forward with a report of seeing her. Her father is a successful businessman. He's involved in politics and even... Eva had six brothers and sisters who also live in the area, and Eva was well-known by other people in the town, but still there are no reports of Eva, and no trace of Eva has been found since she left her mom and dad's home in 1993. On the 16th of December 1993, Marie Kilmartin went to work at the local nursing home. She started work that day at 11 a.m., and during the day that she was at work, there's a Christmas party organized by the staff. And she does leave work at 4 p.m. As she's heading home, she's, you know, got a couple friends with her walking home. They invite her to come to another party later that night, the, kind of like an after party. They just didn't want to stop. So they are like, let's meet up somewhere else. Marie says, yeah, hey, I may stop by. That does sound fu- fun. But her friend's... They, they watch her as, they, as she walks up to her front door, and they knew that it was highly unlikely that Marie would come to the party. She is known to suffer from a slight case of agoraphobia, agoraphobia and she's also slightly scared of the dark. So agoraphobia is a fear of being in situations where escape might be difficult or help would not be available if things go wrong and i have this i it's very slight but i i've always just said i don't like being in a crowd i can't stand it i actively avoid them if i even at the grocery store if i go to turn down an aisle and there's three or four people in that aisle i skip it and come back i just i don't like being in a crowd and if i have no choice and i have to be in a crowd i have to stay on the outer edge i don't ever want to be surrounded in a sea of people i I need to have an escape. Um, and this is the same thing that Marie struggles with. So I'm like same girl I totally get it. Now I'm not scared of the dark. I would come out to a party and after party. I I'm not afraid of the dark like that. Marie was originally from County Sligo, which is in the west side of Ireland and she had moved to Leisha in the 1980s, and I hope I pronounced that right. That's one that I listened to a YouTube video of how to pronounce it. So it's Leisha. It's spelled L-A-O-I-S, but the Gaelic pronunciation is Leisha. So she bought a little house in the town of Port Leisha, and she did have a roommate, and Marie also had a daughter. When Marie moved into her house, she wasted no time getting to know her neighbors. She was known as being very friendly. So when her housemate on this day returns from work at around 6 p. M., six p.m., her housemate is a nurse, um, she's surprised that Marie is not there because there's no lights on. And remember, Marie is afraid of the dark and her groceries are left unpacked on the table, which is a really weird coincidence to the Annie McCarrick situation. I don't think it's a clue, but it's just kind of like, whoa, that's weird. Uh, So after two hours and Marie had not shown up, the roommate is getting worried. It's dark and Marie would be should be home. So because this is unusual and she's not known for staying out late, the roommate calls the nursing home where Marie works and is told, no, she left work at 4 p.m. So she's also told that Marie did not show up at that second party that they had that evening. So. That's all the investigation the roommate does. She does not try to contact anyone else, and she just goes to bed like, oh, well, that's all I can do. Um, I know I shouldn't give her a hard time. There's no telling what she was thinking. I just, you know, I don't know if maybe Marie had mentioned doing something or going somewhere, and so she just was like, oh, I forgot or whatever. I mean, there's probably a million explanations as as to why she didn't think it was serious enough to keep searching. But when Marie has not shown up by the next morning, now the neighbor is, now the roommate is worried. So she calls a friend whose husband is a member of the Garda and he's a detective sergeant at the Port Leisha Garda station. And so he goes in and informs the person that would do a missing persons uh, investigation. And they they take Marie's disappearance very seriously. They acted quickly due to this known anxiety and, you know, mental health situation. They did a forensic examination of the house, and of course, they found nothing because that's not where she disappeared from. We don't know where Marie disappeared from because we don't know what she did after she returned home. Uh, there's no evidence to point to where or why. And they do a check of her phone records and they do uncover a phone call that is made to Marie's fa- phone line. And it's a landline phone. It is 1993. And this call came in at around 420 and it lasted for just over two minutes. So the Garda are pretty positive that this means she answered the call. This is somebody that she spoke to. And the call is traced to a payphone outside of St. Fenton's Hospital in Port Leisha. And they found no other calls that were made from that payphone at the same time as the call that came into Marie's house. So they're pretty sure, yes, these, this phone did call Marie's phone. And so a woman does come forward and she says, hey, I did see a man go into that phone booth or phone box at around 420 and she describes this man as 5 foot 9 about 30 years old and he had dark hair but no one else reports seeing this man and there are no way there's no way for them to confirm this sighting many months pass and there's no sightings or evidence or anything about marie it's like poof she disappeared until june 10th 1994 a local prison officer named Thomas Deegan informs the Garda uh, that he actually talks to a specific Garda officer named Tom Flynn that he had found a body in a drainage ditch in an area called Pims Lane. And this is about 16 kilometers. It's just under 10 miles from where Marie lives. And the body had a cement block on top of it and this is mo- most likely the killer did this to keep the body from rising up from the bottom up to the top of the bog and there's also some effort to conceal the entrance of the bog a there's like a a pram which is basically like a baby stroller and an old home theater no an old home heater that's very different than a theater uh, had been moved into the entrance as it, you know, just to kind of block the view from the road so that you can't see the, the bog. And the body had a woman's coat draped over, over top of it. And the coat was later identified as belonging to Marie Kilmartin. And then the police are able to identify her further using her jewelry and, uh, dental records. The area where Marie's body was found was known as an illegal dump site, so this led to speculation or suspicion that the killer was a local to the area. The state pathologist Professor Harbison did a post-mortem examination at Tullamore Hospital and he concluded that Marie had been strangled to death Her thyroid cartilage did show some damage, and that's what leads to this conclusion. They did rule out sexual assault because she had been found fully clothed. And Marie's body is very badly decomposed, so I don't really know how you can be completely sure that there was no sexual assault. And just because she's clothed does not mean that she wasn't assaulted. I just don't think it should have been ruled out. There are some arrests that are made in Marie's case. Two weeks after her body was discovered, two men are arrested. One is in his late 20s. The other is in his 50s. And I think that this arrest was based on some of the evidence that was found near her body. But since this is known as a dumping ground I don't know that you could say that this is evidence for who the murderer is and the two men are eventually released without charges. Then 14 years later two men one in his 40s one in his 60s and a woman in his her 60s are all arrested and again they go they're let go without any charges. Marie's daughter Ein has done a lot of work to keep Marie's case in the public eye, but no charges have been brought for the disappearance and murder of Marie Kilmartin. Now, 22-year-old Imelda Keenan lived in Waterford, which is a suburb of Dublin, in a small apartment with her fiancé, Mark Wall. She had moved to Waterford from her hometown in Mount Mellick or yeah, that's her hometown, Mount Melek in Leisha County, Amelda was attending computer classes at the CTI College in Waterford. And on January 3rd, 1994, Amelda told her boyfriend, Mark, that she was going to walk to the post office to pick up a welfare payment check. So this is kind of interesting because this is actually a bank holiday since the first fell on a weekend, so the post office would not be open. But this is Mark's story that he told to the Garda. Imelda had left her apartment, and she was spotted by someone that she actually knew at around 1.30. A secretary at a local doctor's office says that she saw Imelda walking, the secretary was driving in a car, and Amelda paused at the crosswalk to allow her car to pass. And this secretary then sees Amelda walk around the corner of the Tower Hotel and head a- onto another cross street. This account, however, is disputed. Amelda's family and boyfriend and other friends all say this secretary did not know Amelda. Uh, they don't know why why she would even know who Imelda was. There was no connection. But whether it is real or not, it is possibly the last sighting of Imelda. Her boyfriend reported her missing, like, I think, the next day. Leading up to her disappearance, Imelda had exhibited a little bit of strange behavior. Imelda had planned to travel with one of her brothers, Ned, who also was living in Waterford at the time. So on the 23rd of December, they were going to take a train together to their family home in Mount Mellet County. But before they left, Imelda canceled these plans with Ned and told him that she would just catch a later train. And this is unusual because it would mean that she would be traveling alone and that she would also have to try to get transportation from the train station in Mount Melick to go to Port Leisha. So no one could confirm if she took this train, the later train or not. And she didn't ever come to the family Christmas party. or So she never showed up on the 23rd at her family's home. After Amelda was reported missing on the 5th, her family traveled to Waterford to look for her. Imelda had nine siblings, she, so she had quite a bit of people that were going to be looking for her. She also had a small group of close friends, and her family did find some unsettling things in her apartment. First, Imelda had left without her glasses, and one of her brothers said that he never saw her without her glasses. She also left her handbag And cigarettes, which was another thing that they said if she was going to leave the house, she would have taken her cigarettes with her. Um, They also found Christmas presents that were addressed to her that had never been opened. So I don't know if she's a part of this vanishing triangle or not. And I know you're probably thinking it. I know I am. The boyfriend did it. Statistically, that's more likely than her just vanishing into thin air. Um, but there doesn't seem to have been very much suspicious around him. He reported Amelda missing two days after she left her apartment. But the Garda did not seem to think that her disappearance was suspicious. They did not do a search of her home. And the only thing they really did do was drag the river that was near Amelda and Mark's apartment. None of her family and friends felt like she was planning to run away. She had not mentioned that to anybody, and they just felt like she didn't have a reason to run away. She is not, there's not been a single trace of Imelda since January 3rd, 1994. Imelda will be missing for nearly 30 years on January 3rd, 2023, and her family has not given up hope of finding her or knowing what may have happened. From what I have found, there has been very little effort put into investigating Imelda's disappearance, which is most likely the reason that she has never been found. Okay, so we are halfway through this story. I'm going to stop here, and there are six more victims to talk about, and these stories are so frustrating. Many of them have such little care that is put into searching for these women, Or when they do start, it's too late. It's so frustrating. I'm so happy we've come a much, we've come a huge distance from this kind of investigation for missing persons. And I think now we know that a lot needs to happen in the early days to do justice or to find somebody who is missing. So come back next week. We will have part two and finish out the Irish Vanishing Triangle. Thanks. If you would like to suggest a case or you have any questions or comments, you can email us at contact at thearchivistpodcast.com. You can also visit our website, thearchivistpodcast.com, where you can see pictures, read show notes, see our sources, and also find links for our other episodes. Have a great week. Thank you for listening. Bye.